welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. What a week of cases. Monsters this week. Absolute monsters to the very end. Enter if you dare. First is Gales v. Warden et al., published by the Third Circuit on September 3rd, 2021. Going to start off with a pair of detention cases, and this first one actually arises in district court and last Friday. I missed it last week, but it has not escaped my grasps. And I'll skip over the district court class action summary judgment specific stuff and get right to immigration law. This case is about mandatory detention under INA Section 236C. That statute mandates that certain non-citizens, mostly those convicted of certain crimes, be detained in immigration prison without even the opportunity for a bond hearing to decide if detention makes sense, and no matter how much the non-citizen has been rehabilitated while in prison. But of course, how would one know whether they're subject to mandatory detention? Or should I say, how would they challenge it? If DHS claims, for example, that a non-citizen was convicted of an aggravated felony, that non-citizen is subject to mandatory detention. But as all loyal listeners know, whether a crime actually matches the definition of an aggravated felony is complicated, and can't be left simply to the decision of a DHS detention officer. Well, in 1999, the BIA tried to account for this problem in Matter of Joseph a case that actually served as my introduction to immigration in law school many years ago. Thank you, David McAfee. At a Joseph hearing, the IJ determines whether the conviction, or if applicable, conduct, subjects the non-citizen to mandatory detention. But even the government agreed in this Third Circuit case here that, quote, the standard of proof currently applied at Joseph hearings is virtually undefined, end quote. Generally, DHS's requirement is a low one, and IJ need only determine that DHS has established probable cause to believe that the non-citizen has been convicted of an aggravated felony or is otherwise subject to mandatory detention, which then shifts the burden to the non-citizen to essentially make their entire legal case. And remember, many of these detainees don't have attorneys. Plus, as the Third Circuit points out, if appealed to the BIA, it takes months and the BIA often weighs any ambiguity on the issue, that is, whether case law shows that the crime subjects the non-citizen to mandatory detention, against the non-citizen, due to the burden-shifting framework. So DHS's burden has been a low burden with huge consequences for over 20 years. And that's really what's at issue in this case. What's the standard of proof, and what are the burdens for Joseph hearings? Now first... And I'm not going to get into all the rationale here, but to start off, the Third Circuit held that INA Section 236C is constitutional. The Third Circuit believed itself foreclosed on the constitutionality of the statute by multiple Supreme Court decisions, and really, it is. But then the Third Circuit dropped a big one, 
holding that at a Joseph hearing, DHS has the initial burden by a preponderance of the evidence, rather than mere probable cause, to establish that INA Section 236C mandatory detention applies, quote, as both a factual and a legal matter, end quote. This, all you asylum attorneys can appreciate, equates to a, quote, more likely than not, end quote, analysis. Get those adverse withholding and CAT cases describing how difficult that standard is to meet? Ready, Third Circuit practitioners. Third Circuit made this finding by applying the always applicable Matthews Supreme Court test and finding, among other things, that, quote, the loss of liberty for detainees is a particularly weighty interest, end quote. Indeed it is. So any risk of error should be borne by the government, not the detainee. Plus, the Third Circuit held that immigration courts need to create a, quote, contemporaneous record of the hearing, consisting of an audio recording, a transcript, or their functional equivalent, end quote. Put another way, it looks like EOIR needs to start recording Joseph hearings like the other hearings it holds. The Third Circuit concluded, however, by holding that class-wide injunctive relief, and the class, I believe, was similarly situated detainees in New Jersey, was not appropriate under INA Section 242F1. Perhaps a preview of the Supreme Court's decision to come this term in Garland v. Gonzalez? A similar issue is before the Supreme Court upon the Court's own request. I'll save the substantive analysis of this naughty statutory issue for the Gonzalez analysis next year, once the Supreme Court speaks. So class-wide injunctive relief isn't appropriate, but the two plaintiffs here get all of this relief per declaratory judgment, which I believe, and I'm not 100%, means that a future plaintiff can walk into federal court in the Third Circuit, present this judgment, and get a declaration of their own. That's a lot of work to get the proper burden and your hearing recorded. Hopefully EOIR doesn't make such action necessary. Congratulations Lawrence S. Lusberg and Michael R. Novick for plaintiffs. One more notable note. Per the Third Circuit's notation, it appears that former BIA chairman Paul Schmidt, who many once reported may have been forced off the BIA at the beginning of the W. Bush administration, dissented in Joseph to advocate for a similar standard as the one now instituted all those years ago. I guess Chairman Schmidt wins 22 years later, and at least in the Third Circuit. And that is Gales v. Warden et al. Next up is Farah v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on September 8, 2021. This is another case about detention, as well as asylum and related relief, plus some categorical approach analysis. It's a doozy. Strap in. Mr. Farah was born in Somalia and is a member of the minority Darad tribe. His family was persecuted terribly as a child and he fled to Kenya. He entered the U.S. as a refugee in 1996, and the only reason he didn't become an LPR is because he missed his fingerprinting appointment. Then, from 2003 to 2006, he was convicted of several crimes. DHS placed him in removal proceedings. He conceded removability and was ordered removed, but DHS could not return him to Somalia, as it rarely can, and so it released him after six months, per Justice Kennedy's necessary concurrence in Zadvidus. Unfortunately for non-citizens everywhere, Mr. Farah then committed several more crimes after his release. So DHS tried to remove him to Somalia again, but he ended up on that ill-fated flight with 91 other Somalis that got stranded in Africa for a few days, and that, due in part to the advocacy of Professor Rebecca Sharpless in her clinic at the University of Miami, led to the reopening of a bunch of their cases. Mr. Farrell was one of the non-citizens who got his removal proceedings reopened as part of the litigation, but upon reopening, DHS charged that his later convictions, of which there were many, amounted to CIMTs, controlled substance offenses, and a crime of domestic violence, each of which individually and in totality made him removable and ineligible for immigration relief. He conceded removability again and, it appears, applied to adjust status under the Special Adjustment of Status Provision for Refugees under INA Section 209, and in the alternative, asylum, for among other reasons, as an Americanized Somali who feared al-Shabaab. The IJ denied relief and protection, and the BIA affirmed. 
Before the 11th Circuit, he moved for and was granted a stay of removal, pending his petition for review. Then, as petitions for review take a long time, and he remained detained throughout all of it, he filed a federal habeas corpus action in district court, alleging that his prolonged detention, pending petition for review, was unlawful. Here's where this decision gets very important and very complicated. The district court dismissed the habeas case by relying on a footnote from the 11th Circuit's 2002 decision in Akinwali v. Ashcroft which had mentioned that the detention of non-citizens with final administrative orders like Mr. Farah is governed by INA Section 241A. That's important, because under the Zadvidus concurrence, as I mentioned and according to this panel, it is, quote, presumptively reasonable, end quote, to detain a non-citizen for up to six months post-final order of removal. As a removal order becomes administratively final once the BIA rules, Mr. Farah was well over that time during the petition for review, making his detention here not presumptively reasonable. However, and based on that Akinwali footnote, quote, the district court concluded that Mr. Farah had interrupted his six-month clock, end quote, in violation of INA Section 241A by, quote, moving for and obtaining a stay of removal so his continued detention did not violate due process, end quote. And that means that he could not get habeas relief and he couldn't get released from detention pending petition for review. Thanks to Mr. Ferris' counsel, Mark Prada, I learned that the U.S. Attorney's Office always argues this in immigration cases in the 11th Circuit when a stay of removal is requested pending petition for review. And you've kind of got to move for a stay because non-citizens, or at least detained non-citizens, with petitions for review pending in the 11th are subject to removal before the 11th Circuit, or any circuit really, decides the petition for review. So it's a big issue. Well, not anymore. The 11th Circuit held that once a circuit court grants a stay of removal, the non-citizen's detention is no longer governed by INA Section 241A, which means that filing the stay itself cannot be said to have interrupted the six-month clock instituted by Justice Kennedy's concurrence in Zadvidus. This holding appears to align with the majority, if not all, other circuits, and it means that prolonged detained individuals with stays of removal and pending petition for reviews, like Mr. Farah, can file habeas actions to get released from detention. Got it? We've only just begun. All of that being said, Mr. Farah lost his case in chief, making the habeas case moot. He is removable because even though he entered as a refugee, one of his convictions, possession of a controlled substance in violation of Minnesota Statute Section 152.025, Subdivision 2A1, is a law relating to a controlled substance under INA Section 237A2BI. That removability provision makes non-citizens removable for such offenses unless the conviction criminalizes possession of 30 grams or less of marijuana for one's own personal use. So this is a categorical approach analysis, the first of many this episode. The Minnesota conviction doesn't match the generic removability offense because Minnesota criminalizes possession of more drugs than do the feds. That makes the Minnesota offense broader than the removability provision, and so Mr. Farah is only removable if the drugs at issue are elements of the crime, which would then make the statute divisible, which would then allow the 11th Circuit to apply the modified categorical approach and review Mr. Farah's conviction documents to see whether or not he possessed a controlled substance listed in the Federal Controlled Substance Act. The 11th Circuit held that all of those things are true. And really, the divisibility analysis on this very Minnesota statute was directly addressed by the Eighth Circuit in Rendon v. Barr, published just before the podcast started. The Eighth Circuit also recently relied on Rendon to make a similar finding in Ahmed v. Garland, discussed on episode 50 of the podcast, so check it out if you're interested. Anyway, the Eleventh Circuit essentially adopts the Eighth Circuit's analysis in those cases. The text of the Minnesota statute and the state case law indicate that the identity of the controlled substance is an element of the offense that a jury must find to convict the defendant. That makes the statute divisible as to the controlled substance possessed, and so, looking at the conviction records under the modified categorical approach, the 11th Circuit saw that Mr. Farah possessed oxycodone. And you can't do that under Minnesota or federal law. 
Alternatively, and of course there's an alternative holding in this decision, the 11th Circuit held that Mr. Farah's conviction for assault under Minnesota Statute Section 609.222, Subdivision 1, makes him removable as an aggravated felony crime of violence, as defined at INA Section 101A43F and by extension 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. Again, categorical approach. The Minnesota crime makes it unlawful to, quote, assault another with a dangerous weapon, end quote. And actually, the 11th Circuit seems to concede that the assault definition in Minnesota doesn't necessarily require physical force in all instances, which would seem to mean that it can't be an aggravated felony crime of violence because 18 U.S.C. Section 16A requires intentional physical force. However, unlike other forms of assault in Minnesota, this one also requires the use of a dangerous weapon, and a quote, act committed with a dangerous weapon that either physically harms someone or intentionally puts him in immediate fear of bodily harm or death inherently requires the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force, end quote. The 11th Circuit also held, it appears to me, that the IJ and the BIA properly denied Mr. Fair's application for a waiver of inadmissibility in conjunction with his refugee adjustment of status application by applying the matter of gene framework. That is, by weighing his substantial criminal history and alcohol problems against the hardship that he and his family will face in Somalia. Finally, the 11th Circuit affirmed the denial of withholding of removal and cat protection. It held that the BIA did give, quote, reasoned consideration, end quote, to Mr. Fair's claims by sufficiently citing to and analyzing the record evidence. And really, the 11th Circuit refused to analyze much more on the issue because of its jurisdictional and standard of review limitations. Although here's a quote for you circuit practitioners trying to make similar reasoned consideration arguments before the circuit courts, quote, if evidence is highly relevant, the board must at least acknowledge that evidence, either implicitly or explicitly, in its decision, end quote. Not nothing. Mr. Farah therefore lost, but made some good law along the way. Mark and company, that decision was too long and too detailed for my weary mind. You are barred from further circuit litigation for the rest of the year. I know it was really long, but just two more things. First, Judge Jill Pryor concurred in part but dissented on the BIA's denial of withholding, believing that indeed, it had ignored highly relevant evidence. Read Judge Pryor's dissent in the 2019 decision in Ali v. U.S. Attorney General for more on how to really craft a failure-to-provide-reasoned-consideration argument in the 11th Circuit. And two, because I just can't help myself. It appears that Mr. Ferris' detention is now again governed by INA Section 241A, because now the 11th Circuit has finally ruled. Recall before, due to the holding of this decision and because the 11th Circuit granted the stay, Mr. Ferris' detention had reverted to INA Section 236C, the mandatory detention provision just discussed in that 3rd Circuit case. Mr. Farah reverted to that detention provision because his drug and aggravated felony convictions subjected him to mandatory detention, and the granting of a stay by the 11th Circuit, or any circuit really, takes detention out of INA Section 241A and puts it either into 236A or 236C. But now, as the 11th Circuit states, his detention is again governed by INA Section 241A, because remember, the 11th just denied his case and revoked the stay. So if he isn't removed to Somalia within six months, quote, he can challenge his detention, end quote, through habeas. Remarkable stuff. And that, friends, is Farah, the U.S. Attorney General. Sticking with the 11th, we have Talamantes Enriquez, the U.S. Attorney General, published on September 9th, 2021. This is a shorter, although only slightly less complicated, case on aggravated felonies. Mr. Talamantes Enriquez entered the United States unlawfully from Mexico in 1994. He was placed in removal proceedings and has U.S. citizen qualifying relatives, so he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. But he's ineligible if he's been convicted of an aggravated felony. 
Mr. Talamantes Enriquez has one conviction for Georgia simple battery under OCGA section 16-5-23 from February 2001. He was sentenced to, quote, confinement for a period of 12 months, end quote, but he didn't actually serve it. It could be executed, however, if he violated probation. Two months later, he was again convicted of Georgia simple battery, this time sentenced to 12 months confinement, which he was allowed to serve on probation. The immigration judge found that both convictions constitute crimes of violence aggravated felonies under INA section 101A43F, which we just discussed. Both convictions originally entailed a sentence of imprisonment to at least one year, which is required of such aggravated felonies. And it appears that whether the Georgia statute satisfies the definition of a crime of violence, as employed at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A and incorporated by reference by Section 101A43F, is not at issue in this case. What is at issue is what happened next. During the BIA appeal in 2017 or 2018, Mr. Talamantes Enriquez sought and obtained, quote, clarification, end quote, on the convictions from the Georgia State Court. That clarification made clear that actually, he was sentenced on a standard checkbox form in the early 2000s that made it seem like he was sentenced to confinement and probation, when actually he wasn't. The state court clarified that he actually received a, quote, sentence of 12 months probation, and none of that sentence was to be served in confinement insofar as he did not violate probation, which he did not, end quote. So the BIA remanded proceedings. The IJ wasn't convinced on remand and reached the same conclusion as before. This time, the BIA affirmed. And here, the 11th Circuit upheld the BIA. First, it agreed that yes, OCGA section 16-5-23 matched the definition of a crime of violence aggravated felony at INA section 101A43F and 18 U.S.C. section 16A. It actually didn't determine whether the conviction is categorically an aggravated felony and jumped right to divisibility. Under the Georgia statute, a person commits the offense of simple battery when he or she either, quote, one, intentionally makes physical contact of an insulting or provoking nature with the person of another, or two, intentionally causes physical harm to another, end quote. Reviewing that text and Georgia state court decisions, the 11th Circuit determined that parts one and two just mentioned are separate elements of the crime that is, their separate offenses, making the Georgia statute divisible as between the first and second way of committing the assault crime. Under Georgia case law, quote, simple battery based on physical contact of an insulting nature, end quote, that is, the second way to violate the statute, quote, must be charged specifically, end quote. And a defendant can be convicted of both crimes for a single act, end quote, that is possible only because of divisibility, End quote. This means that the court was permitted to look at Mr. Talamantes Enriquez's conviction documents under the modified categorical approach and determine if he was convicted of the first or the second way of violating the simple battery statute. And in this case, although the charging document doesn't expressly list subsection 2 or any subsection, the elements alleged match a subsection 2 charge. That is good enough for this panel. Subsection 2 requires intentional use of force, and so, the conviction matches the definition of an aggravated felony crime of violence. But that's not the end of it, because again, to be an aggravated felony, the crime of violence must entail a term of imprisonment of at least one year. Now, at least one of those original sentences in the early 2000s totally meets that definition. INA Section 101A48 defines a term of imprisonment as, quote, incarceration or confinement ordered by a court, regardless of any suspension of the imposition or execution of that imprisonment or sentence. And that's what Mr. Talamantes Enriquez got. But remember, the conviction sentences were later clarified to make clear that he was sentenced only to probation, not to any confinement. That should cut it to negate an aggravated felony crime of violence finding, no? No. To quote Judge Carnes, quote, give us a break, end quote. The clarification occurred 17 years after the sentence and wasn't made by the same sentencing judge. To Judge Carnes, this makes it, quote, a thinly veiled or more like 
buck naked, attempt to affect the result of a federal proceeding by altering the sentencing judge's sentence order, that won't work, end quote. Having determined that it owes no deference to a Georgia state court judge, the 11th Circuit conducted no analysis as to whether, under Georgia law, the sentence really was error in the early 2000s, and really did need to be clarified. So Mr. Talamantes Enriquez has been convicted of an aggravated felony and is removable. Back to the law. I mean, I don't know. The court never says it, but the whole divisibility analysis seems irrelevant unless the first of the two ways of violating OCGA section 16-5-23 is not a crime of violence aggravated felony. So cite to this case for the proposition that Georgia's simple battery isn't categorically an aggravated felony? I would. See also footnote 1 in the decision. And finally, Mr. Talamantes Enriquez argued that the clarification really means something under the BIA's 2016 decision in matter of Estrada. The 11th Circuit rejected that argument for a few reasons, not least of which because Attorney General Barr vacated Estrada in matter of Thomas and Thompson. So this is the first decision that I'm aware of relying on Attorney General Barr's decision in Thomas and Thompson, which vacated, to paraphrase LeBron, not one, not two, but three BIA decisions regarding the effect that post-conviction state court relief will have in immigration court. Seems like Thomas and Thompson is ripe for review, Attorney General Garland. And that is Talamantes Enriquez, the U.S. Attorney General. Moving on and back to the third. We have Sase v. Attorney General of the U.S., published on September 10th, 2021. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude, or CIMTs. Mr. Sasse is from Sierra Leone and was admitted into the United States as a lawful permanent resident in 2007. But as relevant here, in 2018, he was convicted of aiding and abetting aggravated identity theft in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1028A-A-1, and he was sentenced to 24 months imprisonment. Because he had already been convicted of one CIMT prior, if this conviction is a CIMT as well, he's removable for being an LPR convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct. The Third Circuit held that yes indeed, Mr. Sasse's conviction is a CIMT. First, it held that 18 U.S.C. Section 1028AA, the Federal Aggravated Identity Theft Statute, is clearly divisible because subsection C of that statute lists nine different specific ways to commit the crime, each specifically numbered. That means that the modified categorical approach can be used to see which subcrime Mr. Sasse was convicted under. Having done so, quote, it is clear from that agreement that this plea includes an admission to conduct constituting the predicate felony of bank fraud, an undeniable CIMT, and a crime specifically enumerated in section 1028A, C5, end quote. Because that subcrime requires, quote, fraudulent intent, end quote, it is a CIMT. So said the Supreme Court, kinda, 70 years ago, back when interracial marriage was also morally turpitudinous. The Third Circuit rejected Mr. Sasse's argument that his aiding and abetting crime criminalized mere possession of a fake ID without fraudulent intent, because the statute requires that the aiding and abetting be in relation to one of the principal crimes, which again, in this case, requires a fraudulent intent finding. The Third Circuit distinguished Mr. Sasse's case from Matter of Cerna, wherein the BIA held in 1992 that mere possession of an altered identity document in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1546 was not a CIMT. And that statute, section 1546, is incorporated into Mr. Sasse's larger statute of conviction at subsection C7. So if the Third Circuit had determined that 18 U.S.C. section 1028AA wasn't divisible, it would seem Mr. Sasse's conviction would not be a CIMT, because the statute does not appear to be categorically turpitudinous. 
but the statute is divisible, and what Mr. Sasse did is different than what Mr. Cerna did. Again, Mr. Sasse's subsection of conviction requires an intent to defraud. That makes it a CIMT. Mr. Sasse, therefore, will lose his green card. Big week, but I must note simply. In a footnote, the Third Circuit treats Mr. Sasse's federal conviction for aiding and abetting identity theft the same as if he had been the principal, due to the federal aiding and abetting definition that treats aiders and abettors the same as principals, and due to a 1955 BIA decision. But I don't think that's necessarily the case, depending on how a state conviction defines aiding and abetting. Again, this was a federal conviction, so that's not an issue here, but it might be an issue in another jurisdiction. I might be misremembering, and I can't remember the name, but I seem to recall a 2017 Ninth Circuit case on the issue analyzing an aiding and abetting statute from Washington State. Look into it if you have a state law aiding and abetting conviction. There might be a there, there. And that is Sasse v. Attorney General of the U.S. Next up is Marquez v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on September 7th, 2021. This case is about the ever-complicated crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment, which I'm going to just refer to in this decision as a crime of child abuse. And it's about retroactivity. Mr. Marquez is a lawful permanent resident who in 2006 was convicted of having violated New York's Child Endangerment Statute, New York Penal Law, Section 260.10.1. In 2019, an IJ ordered him removed, holding that the conviction makes him removable under INA Section 237A2EI as a crime of child abuse. Now, everyone agrees that the crime matches the federal definition of a crime of child abuse at least under the BIA's 2010 decision in matter of Saram, wherein the BIA held that a state conviction need not require as an element, quote, actual harm, end quote, to make it a removable offense. Rather, all that's required, to paraphrase, is a, quote, sufficient risk of harm to the child, end quote. Plus, the Second Circuit's 2019 decision in Matthews v. Barr is directly on point on this very New York statute. So that's a no-go. Mr. Marquez, therefore, argued that matter of Saram shouldn't apply retroactively. He got his conviction in 2006, and Saram came out in 2010, so he argued that to apply the new definition of a crime of child abuse to his conviction would be unfair. The Second Circuit disagreed and held that matter of Saram can be applied retroactively. Even though new legislation and new rules usually only apply prospectively, that is, to future conduct, and while the BIA has held to similar standards in this regard, as is, say, Congress when it legislates, retroactivity is a five-factor test in the Second Circuit. The, quote, most significant factors, end quote, are factors two and three. Quote, whether the new rule presents an abrupt departure from well-established practice or merely attempts to fill a void in an unsettled area of law, and the extent to which the party against whom the new rule is applied relied on the former rule. End quote. Here, both factors favor retroactive effect for matter of Saram. First, that second factor. The Second Circuit held that Saram wasn't an abrupt departure from prior BIA precedent, as was, say, matter of Abaya and matter of Diaz-Lizarraga with CIMT case law in 2016. But rather, matter of Saram was merely, quote, filling a void in an unsettled area of law, end quote which followed the BIA's 2008 decision on the very issue in matter of Velasquez Herrera. Velasquez Herrera had expressly left open the possibility that the crime of child abuse removal provision might include statutes that don't require actual harm, so says the Second Circuit, and so matter of Saram wasn't an abrupt departure on the BIA's part. Nor, according to the Second Circuit, did the 1999 BIA case, Matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez, set out an actual harm rule. And in any event, Rodriguez-Rodriguez involved a different, albeit similar, removability provision. So Matter of Saram is not an abrupt departure. The final factor analyzed, the extent of reliance on the BIA's former rule, also cuts against Mr. Marquez, 
because according to the Second Circuit, the BIA didn't really have a rule yet, so there was nothing for Mr. Marquez to rely upon in 2006 when he pled guilty. Nor would such reliance have been reasonable, which is really the standard anyway. Having so held, the Second Circuit determined that it lacked jurisdiction to review Mr. Marquez's challenge to the BIA's denial of cancellation of removal because he didn't bring any questions of law or constitutional claims except one. He argued that the BIA violated past precedent by considering police reports at the cancellation of removal stage. But kind of like before, the Second Circuit held that there is no such rule preventing the BIA from considering police reports at the cancellation of removal stage, and so, no rule was violated. So Mr. Marquez lost his case. More on this issue in 30 seconds. And that is Marquez v. Garland. Next up is Diaz Rodriguez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 10th, 2021. This is the first of five, that's right, five, Ninth Circuit cases. This decision also is about crimes of child abuse, neglect, or abandonment. And honestly, it's a decision with huge implications in multiple areas, which I only fully grasped as I read through it. Enjoy. It's just wild. Apparently, this is the same exact issue on the same exact statute addressed in the Ninth Circuit's 2018 decision, Martinez Cedillo v. Sessions. Whether California Penal Code Section 273AA matches the crime of child abuse removability provision. The Martinez Cedillo panel said that it did by relying on the BIA's decision in matter of Saram. But then the Ninth Circuit went in bonk, meaning that the panel decision in Martinez Cedillo got vacated. And then the petitioner in Martina Cedillo passed away before the en banc court could rule, so the en banc court dismissed everything as moot. Therefore, in this decision, Diaz-Rodriguez, writing on a legally clean slate, this panel held that California Penal Code Section 273AA is not a crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment. Wow. Have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late that I'm the only person who finds that interesting? Whatever. Here's why the panel so held. Cal Penal Code Section 273AA criminalizes anyone who, quote, having the care or custody of any child, end quote, and under circumstances likely to produce great bodily harm or death, quote, willfully causes or permits that child to be placed in a situation where his or her person or health is endangered, end quote. Although the California statute requires the defendant to act willfully under the terms of the statute, quote, the California Supreme Court has held that criminal negligence suffices, such that the defendant need not be subjectively aware of the risk of harm involved, end quote. So don't take the statutory text for granted, guys. The California statute allows for a criminally negligent mens rea. Now here's where it gets really tricky. Martina Cedillo had granted Chevron deference to Matter of Saram, just discussed in that Second Circuit decision. And then two presidential Ninth Circuit decisions relied upon Martina Cedillo to do the same. While ordinarily a panel can't overturn another panel decision, those two other decisions apparently conducted no analysis on the issue. They just relied on Martina Cedillo, as they had to at the time, because Martina Cedillo was binding at the time. But now there is no Martinez Cedillo anymore. And lo and behold, this panel here held that matter of Saram will not be getting Chevron deference in the Ninth Circuit. I don't think we've ever had a circuit split occur within an episode on the podcast before, but we just did. Truly a glorious day. Conflicts with at least the Second, Fifth, and Eleventh Circuits, but agrees with, in part, a Tenth Circuit decision. Now, under matter of Saram, a child endangerment state conviction like California's here that allowed for a mental state of mere criminal negligence might cut it, because it still involves a serious risk of harm to the child, even though there's no injury. But Saram does not govern in the Ninth Circuit, so says this panel, because Congress provided a clear, unambiguous answer to the statutory question of what's required of a crime of child abuse, abandonment, or neglect. That means the Ninth Circuit cannot grant deference to matter of Saram. To so fine, the panel relied on the rationale used by the Supreme Court in Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions. 
There, although the Supreme Court recognized that a different statute at issue didn't define, quote, sexual abuse of a minor, end quote, for aggravated felony purposes, quote, the court did not throw up its hands and declare the statute ambiguous with respect to the specific question raised there, end quote, but instead first applied the regular tools of statutory interpretation to resolve the ambiguity question. And so that's what the Ninth Circuit did here. It held the statute unambiguous for a few reasons. First, the statutory tool of dictionaries. To step back, in Saram, the BIA held that the INA's reference to a crime of child abuse, child abandonment, or child neglect actually referred to a single unitary definition, rather than three separate definitions. Made life easier for immigration practitioners, but to be candid, I never quite got it. And I guess neither does the Ninth Circuit. It held here that the dictionary definitions of those terms preclude such a unitary conclusion. Each phrase, abuse, abandonment, or neglect, is clearly a separate concept. Honestly, this seems a bit not great for non-citizens. It seems to me that it opens the door to three different definitions for the federal removal offense rather than one, which would seem to allow for an easier categorical match. But we'll see what happens. Anyway, according to the Ninth Circuit, child abuse requires some form of injury, although it can include emotional or mental injury. Child neglect requires, quote, a sustained failure by a child's caregiver to provide for the child's basic needs, end quote. While child abandonment is, quote, understood to involve the forsaking of one's parental duties, end quote. More to the definitions, but that's an overview. And importantly, all exclude child endangerment offenses such as Section 273AA, which require no harm and punish one-time negligent acts. Furthermore, the INA's structure indicates Congress did not intend such harsh results for merely negligent conduct. Quote, Under the BIA's reading, a non-citizen convicted of negligently endangering her child on a single occasion is categorically ineligible for cancellation of removal, even if she can prove that separation would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to that same child. Mandating separation of parent and child in those circumstances would be decidedly at odds with the otherwise child-protective aim of INA Section 237A2EI, end quote, the Child Abuse Removability Provision. Wow. Rewind that one if you need to. Use that rationale all day for other 237 removability definitions. And finally, only a handful of states criminalized child abuse, abandonment, or neglect crimes with a criminally negligent mens rea in 1996, when the removability provision was passed. So that indicates that Congress intended for a higher mens rea at 237A2EI. Long story short, Mr. Diaz-Rodriguez gets to keep his green card, and crimes of child abuse, neglect, or abandonment just got wild in the Ninth Circuit. Congratulations, Jerry Shapiro, for petitioner. Judge Callahan respectfully dissented, and due to the large implications of this decision and its extraordinary procedural history, I wouldn't be surprised if the Ninth Circuit goes in bonk on the issue again. But who knows? California Crimmigration Attorneys, start your engines. And that is Diaz-Rodriguez v. Garland. Next up is Benedicto v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 9, 2021. This decision is about due process and convention against torture protection. Mr. Benedicto did not succeed. Mr. Benedicto is from the Dominican Republic and entered the U.S. as a tourist at 16 or 17 years old in the 1970s. He became a lawful permanent resident at 22 in 1980, but got several convictions in the 1980s and 1990s, many related to a heroin addiction. Then, in 2003, he was convicted in Washington State for some serious domestic violence crimes. So he's in trouble. But he also has schizophrenia, and he was deemed mentally incompetent at his first removal hearing, meaning that the immigration judge appointed him a qualified representative, or QR, that is, an attorney to represent him, likely pro bono. Mr. Benedicto was so aggressive towards everyone due to his mental illness that his QR attorney filed a motion to terminate proceedings, arguing that he couldn't represent Mr. Benedicto. The IJ denied the motion but allowed the QR to withdraw as counsel. 
A new QR was appointed, and she filed a similar motion to terminate, because Mr. Benedicto wasn't cooperating with anyone, and again, there is no indication here that his lack of cooperation is for any reason other than his schizophrenia. The IJ granted a bunch of continuances, but not the motion to terminate. The IJ required DHS to provide the QR with Mr. Benedicto's immigration record without Mr. Benedicto's authorization, which he would not give, and for the QR to plead to the charges in the notice to appear for Mr. Benedicto. The IJ ordered Mr. Benedicto to testify, and based on the testimony documented in this decision, he clearly has a mental illness. The IJ determined that Mr. Benedicto was removable and had been convicted of aggravated felonies that, reviewing the circumstances of those convictions, were so serious that it barred him from withholding of removal under the INA and made him eligible for only cat deferral. The IJ denied that too, noting that while there was no doubt Mr. Benedicto believed what he was saying, his fear that, for example, his cousin controlled the government of the Dominican Republic and would kill him was not objectively reasonable. Nor did the record show that the mentally ill or prisoners are tortured in the Dominican Republic, at least by the government or with its acquiescence. The BIA affirmed, as did the Ninth Circuit, first due process and the denial of the motions to terminate. The safeguard due mentally incompetent non-citizens in immigration proceedings are governed by the U.S. Constitution and the BIA's 2011 decision in matter of MOM and its 2016 decision in matter of MJK. But to summarize, appointing an attorney is considered a very good safeguard, and it's largely up to the IJ in a given case of what other appropriate safeguards are required. Here, the Ninth Circuit deemed the safeguards implemented by the IJ, which additionally included many continuances and much more, sufficient. Although Amicus Council, appointed to make the arguments on petition for review for Mr. Benedicto, made a good effort and gave a bunch of scenarios that might have been affected by Mr. Benedicto's mental health, at the end of the day, the Ninth Circuit saw no, quote, plausible scenarios in which the outcome of the proceedings would have been different if a more elaborate process were provided, end quote. Turning to cat deferral, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the IJ and the BIA's denial, holding that the objective record did not show that the Dominican police, prison, or mental health professionals torture individuals like Mr. Benedicto, or that he will more likely than not be tortured. While there have been occurrences, the evidence shows, at least somewhat, that the Dominican Republic is trying to improve conditions in those facilities. The Ninth Circuit deemed a variety of other arguments as unexhausted or unreviewable and affirmed removal of Mr. Benedicto. Here are some of those arguments that the Ninth Circuit did not address. The Ninth Circuit did not review whether the only appropriate safeguard under matter of MAM and under the extreme conditions in this case was termination, because the argument wasn't made to the BIA, making it unexhausted. So that is an open argument, everyone. Also, the decision, in my opinion, doesn't foreclose a safeguard that honestly, the IJ kind of applied here. Deem the non-citizen credible, even when the testimony is objectively incredible. Because after all, the individual has a mental illness, so he or she believes what she's saying, and isn't adversely credible. Argue it, it's been accepted before. And that is Benedicto V. Garland. Next is Arahita Martinez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 7th, 2021. Big old case on reinstatement, relief and protection, and statutory interpretation. Keep them coming. Miss Arahita is from El Salvador. Growing up, his father believed him gay, beat him severely, and was very cruel. He fled to the U.S. in 2005, was placed in removal proceedings, but he did not appear and so he was ordered removed in absentia in 2006 and was eventually removed. He re-entered multiple times after that, and his final orders of removal appear to have been reinstated multiple times. Now in his 20s, he returned home in 2010, but when his father saw that he was wearing an earring, he pulled it out, said some horrible stuff about gay people that I won't repeat here, and said that he never wanted to see his son again. Miss Arahita fled to the U.S. again and resides here with his wife and two children. Also in 2016, one of his brothers joined MS-13 and threatened to kill Miss Arahita when Mr. Arahita expressed his disapproval. 
What a world. Risa Arahita was discovered by ICE in 2017, and ICE reinstated that 2006 removal order. And remember, reinstatement pretty much just requires ICE to confirm that the individual is who they believe he or she is, and that he or she is subject to a final order of removal. Having reinstated the final order, Ms. Arahita was eligible only for withholding under the INA and cat protection, not asylum. And that's only if he passed his reasonable fear interview. He did pass, but an IJ and then the BIA denied relief and protection. The Ninth Circuit affirmed, but not before dispensing with some creative and, if accepted, groundbreaking arguments from Mr. Arahita. First, Mr. Arahita argued that the IJ and the BIA's, quote, refusal to consider whether he was entitled to asylum in light of circumstances that arose after the removal order was first issued violated both the INA and the U.S. Constitution, end quote. Not a crazy argument. After all, materially changed circumstances are grounds to reopen a final order of removal under the statute and the regulations, but if ICE reinstates that final order first, it can't be reopened under the statute or the regulations. Quite the gotcha. As an initial matter, the Ninth Circuit held that it could review the issue, notwithstanding any lack of argument made below, because it would have been futile for Mr. Arahita to make the argument to the IJ or the BIA as the agency can't rule on the constitutionality or the appropriateness of the statute or the regulations. Alternatively, quote, an exception to the exhaustion requirement has been carved out for constitutional challenges to DHS procedures, end quote. And just to be clear, counsel did a good job of exhausting before the BIA, for the record. So turning to that substantive argument, the question for the court was really, what trumps? The statute, allowing for reopening where there exists materially changed country conditions? Or the reinstatement statute, that takes that right away when the non-citizen re-enters unlawfully and a removal order is reinstated? The Ninth Circuit addressed the issue a bit in 2016 in Paris Guzman v. Lynch, in a manner unfavorable to the non-citizen, so that was a steep hill for Mr. Arahita to climb. And he could not. In addition to Perez Guzman, the Ninth Circuit held that the Asylum Changed Country Conditions Statute appears at INA Section 208. Indeed, it does. While the reinstatement provision appears at INA Section 241, two completely separate sections of the INA, so it's hard to argue that Section 208 trumps the express language of Section 241. And even Section 208's language on changed country conditions seems to limit the exception narrowly, and not to situations where a final order has been reinstated. Mr. Arahita also argued that DHS violated his due process rights by choosing to reinstate his final order in the first place, thereby precluding him from applying for asylum. And DHS does have discretion not to reinstate final orders in the cases that come before it. Heads up, long-time listener, Secretary Mayorkas. But the Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Arahita has no such due process right to compel DHS to consider exercising its grace. Quote, Recognizing such a right would undermine the agency's plenary discretion over when to exercise that form of leniency. End quote. With asylum off the table, the Ninth Circuit reviewed the BIA's denial of withholding and cat protection and affirmed. Mr. Arahita sought withholding on account of, quote, one, his perceived or imputed membership in the social group of Salvadoran gay men, and two, his anti-gang political opinion, end quote. And the IJ and the BIA actually assumed that he had suffered past persecution, thereby shifting the burden to DHS. But then the agency held that at least to the first group, things had changed. Mr. Arahita had grown up, and his father had gotten old. The Ninth Circuit affirmed that, even though DHS did not submit any evidence to meet its burden to establish a change. For something like this, Mr. Arahita growing up and his father getting old, DHS didn't need to submit anything. The Ninth Circuit also held that it was Mr. Arahita's father, rather than El Salvador generally, that was the proper focus about changed conditions. It's not the case that, quote, DHS can defeat the presumption of future persecution only by affirmatively proving that no one else will persecute the applicant on the same basis, end quote. Interesting. Plus, the record doesn't compel that circumstances for LGBTQ or perceived LGBTQ individuals in El Salvador are so bad as to mandate withholding or cat protection. 
As to gangs, the phone call with the brother just wasn't enough. This despite the court recognizing that, quote, perhaps Mr. Erejita is right that return to El Salvador is a death sentence for those willingly to vocally oppose the MS-13, end quote. But Mr. Erejita is not a vocal opponent. The quote might help another case, though. Finally, the Ninth Circuit affirmed cat denial, noting that the BIA properly considered all harms in the aggregate. Big one, and bad for the non-citizen. Let's move on. And that is Erejita Martinez v. Garland. Moving on. Alam v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 8, 2021. This is an en banc decision on credibility, a case I tease on episode 69 of the podcast when the Supreme Court decided Garland v. Die and overruled the Ninth Circuit on a credibility issue. Looks like the Ninth got to work. And actually, the decision doesn't rely or seemingly depend on Die at all. Here, the Ninth Circuit has vacated its prior precedent applying a, quote, single factor rule, end quote, to credibility review. Quote, the single factor rule, as we have applied it, requires us to sustain an adverse credibility finding if one of the agency's identified grounds is supported by substantial evidence, end quote. That is now vacated. It's a bit complicated. Mr. Alam had his asylum claim denied by an IJ based on an adverse credibility finding that relied on seven reasons. On petition for review, Oil only defended two of the seven. A divided panel affirmed, holding that one reason alone suffices. Judge Collins dissented, arguing that substantial evidence can't support affirming an IJ's decision based on a single reason when the IJ relied upon many more, here seven, and possibly in totality. Going in bonk, the Ninth Circuit held that the single-factor rule violates the Real ID Act requirement that an adverse credibility finding, and by extension, an affirmance, be based on, quote, the totality of the circumstances and all relevant factors, end quote. The en banc court, therefore, sent the case back to the panel for further consideration, concluding by stating, quote, there is no bright-line rule under which some number of inconsistencies requires sustaining or rejecting an adverse credibility determination. Our review will always require assessing the totality of the circumstances, end quote. So as I read the decision, this is a generally favorable ruling for non-citizens as it appears to make it easier to challenge adverse credibility findings on petition for review. If nothing else, it appears that Oil's work just got a bit more difficult in the ninth. Gotta brief all the reasons, guys. Congratulations, Matt Dracovic and Chelsea Noel Kelso. To misquote Aerosmith, you're back in the panel again. Here's something interesting from Judge Bennett in concurrence. Judge Bennett wrote in concurrence to note that there are a lot of similar judge-made rules in the Ninth that should be overturned following the Supreme Court's last term, which seemed to target the Ninth kind of heavy. Here's one of them. Apparently in the Ninth Circuit, and barring a narrow exception, there is a, quote, categorical rule that a petitioner's lie to the asylum office always counts as substantial evidence for an adverse credibility finding, end quote. But like the single-factor rule, this rule is also based on pre-Real ID Act case law, and Judge Bennett believes that it too violates the totality of the circumstances requirement for adverse credibility. If you've got this issue on petition for review, Judge Bennett has teed up your argument. And that is Alam v. Garland. Finally, we have Edamandi v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 9th, 2021. If you're still with me, kudos to you. Yet another monster decision, but it's a good one to end with for the non-citizen. This is about the law of the case doctrine and changed country conditions for asylum and related relief. Judge Mylon Smith dissented in an opinion that I simply cannot review at this time. Mr. Adamati is from Iran and came to the U.S. in 1996. He was placed in removal proceedings in the 1990s and ended up getting scammed by an immigration expert who was neither an attorney nor an expert. 
This unscrupulous individual convinced Mr. Adamati to embellish his asylum application and provide false documents to the court that purported to show past persecution based on a political opinion in Iran. The individual who did this was prosecuted during the removal proceedings in federal court for being a bad human. Mr. Adamati allegedly converted to Christianity in or around 1999 during those removal proceedings and added a fear of religious persecution to his asylum application. But at the merits hearing in 2002, the IJ discovered the forged documents related to the separate asylum claim and denied everything based on an adverse credibility finding. The IJ even made a frivolous finding, which pretty much bars non-citizens from applying for any form of relief in the future. The IJ refused to take testimony from Mr. Adamati's pastor in the United States. The BIA affirmed, as did the Ninth Circuit in a panel unpublished opinion in 2007. Mr. Adamati was not removed and moved the BIA to reopen his case in 2018, based on changed country conditions in Iran for Christians. Quite the naughty issue. For after all, the IJ and the BIA refused to believe that he's even a Christian all those years ago. But it seems like he totally is. The BIA denied the motion because 1. Mr. Adamati did not include an I-589 asylum application with his motion. 2. He was previously deemed not credible on the Christianity thing. And 3. He didn't, allegedly, provide new and previously unavailable material evidence of changed country conditions for Christians in Iran. Mr. Adamati petitioned for review in the Ninth Circuit on the denial of the motion to reopen, and here we are again. Hoyle first argued that under the law of the case doctrine, Mr. Adamati couldn't succeed, because another Ninth Circuit panel had already upheld the adverse credibility finding regarding whether Mr. Adamati was even a Christian. But according to this Ninth Circuit panel, the law of the case doctrine is merely, quote, a guide to discretion, end quote. As between Ninth Circuit panels, and I guess as between courts of any kind, a prior panel's decision should generally be followed by a subsequent panel unless the prior decision was clearly erroneous, there's been an intervening change in law, or, quote, substantially different, end quote, evidence was produced at the second proceeding. Interesting. The Ninth Circuit noted that actually, the law of the case doctrine probably doesn't apply at all in this case, because the doctrine really only applies to legal issues, not pure factual issues or fact-heavy mixed questions of law and fact, like credibility. But even assuming it applies, the Ninth Circuit held that it was not bound by the prior panel's finding. It's so found, essentially, by reviewing the adverse credibility finding and determining that it was not supported by substantial evidence which in turn makes the prior panel's affirmance of that credibility finding clearly erroneous. This is mainly because the IJ's finding was based on a belief that Mr. Adamati lied about being baptized, when the record before the IJ did show that he had been baptized, with lots of supporting evidence. The IJ also erred in relying on minor inconsistencies, so said the Ninth Circuit, bringing back a great quote from one of its two-and-a-half-decade-old case, quote, generalized statements that do not identify specific examples of evasiveness or contradiction in the petitioner's testimony are insufficient, end quote. Plus, the IJ didn't let Mr. Adamati's lawyer even call the pastor to testify. He did, however, submit forged documents. But while the falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus maxim may allow a court to disregard all of a respondent's testimony when the respondent lies in one area, it does not allow a court to disregard a completely separate claim, supported by other evidence that does not depend on credibility. At a minimum, the law is, quote, clear that an adverse credibility determination cannot destroy an entire Convention Against Torture claim, end quote. And neither the IJ, the BIA, nor the prior panel applied that rule. So the adverse credibility finding does not bar this panel from remanding the case for a grant of the motion to reopen. As to the fact that Mr. Adamati did not attach a new asylum application to his motion, the Ninth Circuit held that the regulation clearly does not require a respondent to include a new I-589 in order to reopen a previously filed asylum application based on changed country conditions. This is different from, say, a motion to reopen to apply for relief in the first instance. That requires a new application with the motion to reopen, but that's not what's happening here. Read the decision, though, and be careful in other circuits. 
As to conditions in Iran for Christians, evidence shows that they have indeed changed materially since 2002. That includes, but is of course not limited to, Mr. Adamati's own affidavit, because, get this, quote, the board is required to accept as true the facts stated in an affidavit unless they are inherently unbelievable, end quote. Regardless, the BIA failed to conduct the appropriate analysis of conditions from 2002 as compared to 2018 when the motion was filed. Great law on this one as well about what precisely the BIA must do and how applicants can meet their burden to establish change country conditions. So the Ninth Circuit remanded for, presumably, reopening, but only for Mr. Adamati to present a religious-based Convention Against Torture claim. I'm not sure why it's limited to CAT, the decision doesn't say. But maybe, just maybe, it's because this panel didn't technically disturb the prior panel's affirmance of the IJ and the BIA's frivolous finding, which would bar all relief under the INA. But CAT protection is not under the INA. It's a creature of regulation. Aha! Congratulations Judith L. Wood and Beth S. Persky for petitioner. Shoot me an email. Tell me if I got it right. One more quote before you can all stop listening to me. How about this for document requirements, both foreign and domestic? While IJs, quote, have the discretion to disregard that evidence so long as they give a reasoned explanation, end quote, the IJ, quote, did not have that discretion here because the government never disputed the authenticity of Edamati's evidence and the evidence could be readily authenticated, end quote. Keep that front and center at your individual hearing and on appeal. DHS has burdens too, and your evidence gets in and gets considered de facto if DHS does nothing. And that is Adamati B. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.